Let's open in prayer. Yahweh, we just um, come to you tonight and ready to learn your word. And if we're not completely ready, I pray that you prepare us for that. Once again, uh, we always pray that you just calm our minds, calm our spirits, and open up our hearts to who you are. Um, Our only hope to understand your scriptures is your Holy Spirit. And so we pray for his guidance. We pray for his illumination. We pray that he would speak into our hearts, um, that he would take the truths of your scripture and wow us with who you are. Um, Open our minds to a bigger and grander understanding of who you are. And take these truths and allow them to transform us. And then give us the eyes to see the world and you and the people around us differently. Um, now that it's filtered through the Word of God. I pray that you just honor and reward our diligence and our study and our sacrifices and commitments tonight um, and better understanding you and growing closer to you and experiencing more of your joy and your peace and that you offer and promise to us when we pursue you. In Jesus' name, amen. We come to chapter 8. Chapter 8 is kind of the climax of Hebrews. Um, Hebrews has been building up. We've seen Christ superior to the prophets, Christ superior to the angels, Christ superior to Moses, Christ superior to Joshua and the rest that he provided, Christ superior to the priesthood, and Christ superior to all the, the Mosaic Covenant. And so now we come, he's kind of introduced us to Christ superior to the Mosaic Covenant because that's the conclusion of Christ being superior to the sacrificial system. Because if he's superior to the sacrificial system, and that's the foundation and the basis for everything in the covenant, then the implication is that he's superior to the Mosaic Covenant. And that's where chapter 8 begins. And chapter 8 begins with, now the main point of what we have been saying is this. Basically, I have been spending the last seven chapters trying to get us to this point. And this point is the climax, it's the crux, it's the apex of everything that the author is trying to argue. And so in 8, 9, and halfway through 10, he's going to wrap this big thing up. And he's going to wrap it up by saying it really has everything to do with the law and that Christ is superior to the law because he offers us a new covenant. And so we will dive into that tonight. And then once he deals with that, then he'll close the book out with the rest of 10, 11, 12, and 13, with basically saying, now what are you going to commit to? Are you going to commit to all these things that were pointing to Christ? Are you going to commit to the world... Are you going to allow the sufferings and the trials and the persecutions to wear you down to the point that you abandon the faith? Or are you going to commit yourself to that thing that is superior to all other things and makes everything else pale in contrast? So that's kind of the the, the point of the book is, here's what I'm building up to. Tonight is the climax, the apex of everything. And then he's going to finish with, what do you do with it? Now you're left with a choice. And the scary part is, if you've been paying attention to the warning passages, it's like, 
There's a lot at stake depending on what side of the, the razor you fall on. Now that you know all this stuff, you're in the category of being enlightened, experiencing the Holy Spirit, having the truth. What are you going to do with it? And that's the scary thing about people coming into Bible studies who may not be Christians yet and giving them the amazing Word of God. The scary thing is, is what are they going to do when they walk out with it? So that's what we're talking about tonight is here's the climax. So chapter 8. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that the Lord, not man, set up. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So this one, too, had to offer something. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. The place where they serve is a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary, just as Moses was warned by God as he was about to complete the tabernacle. For he says, See that you make everything according to the design shown to you on the mountain. But now Jesus has obtained a superior ministry, since the covenant that he mediates is also better and is enacted on better promises. So this is not anything new of what we've already been told in the previous chapters. So he's kind of bringing it all together. He's summarizing everything. In verses 1 and 2, he says, this is the main point. Here's what everything comes down. First, we have such a high priest, one who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And so he goes back again, and he pretty much requotes the Psalms. And he makes the point of this, the twofold point that's been making all throughout this. We have a high priest. Okay, we have a high priest that's superior to all their priests. No one in the entire world has given you such access to God like Jesus has. No one has come from God like Jesus has. Nobody has dealt with sin and atoned for it like Jesus has. No one has conquered death and sin and the devil like Jesus has. And nobody has opened up the veil, like ripped it open so that it will have no hope of ever closing up again and ushered you into the presence of God like Jesus has. There's no one who can grant you that access. And I've mentioned it before, because if you go to every single religion, they pretty much all say, have at it. It's all up to you. It's all up to you. And then the second thing he says is not only that, but a high priest who sits on the right hand of God. It's not just someone who's offered us great access it's someone who actually rules over creation, who is king, and has proven his right to be ruler, as chapter 1 said, by being creator over everything, and proven his right to be ruler by conquering sin and death and buying the world back. And as we get into Revelation, he basically says, he is worthy to open up the seal, which is the title deed to the earth. Like, who has the right to claim the title deed to the earth? And it's Jesus because he has redeemed all men and purchased them with his blood. Okay, And so those are the two reasons why he sits at the right hand of God. He's creator and he bought it back. I mean, he created it and then he bought the very thing that he created and belonged to him to begin with. And so this is a high priest that you will find nowhere else in all of creation. He is our king that we revere 
and we bow down to, and we stand in awe. But at the same time, He's our Father, Abba, who we can have confidence and go before. And this is very important. Because if you look throughout history, you will never find any being in the world that is both completely sovereign and relational. Okay? I mean, I think we've mentioned this before. Allah is sovereign, but not relational. Buddha, relational, but not sovereign. The avatars of Hinduism are relational, but not sovereign. The God force that they come from is sovereign, but not relational. I mean, we see this over the polytheistic gods are relational, sometimes a little too relational, but not sovereign. And only God and only Jesus, together in the Trinity, are both of these things. And that's very, very, very important. And the other thing that's very important to understand about this is we tend to go to one extreme or the other in the way that we approach God or the way that we view Him. The Jews got in the mistake of for a long period of time, they basically realized that they sinned and got punished, sinned and got punished, and sinned and got punished, until eventually they sinned so much that God punished them by pretty much allowing a huge number of them to be slaughtered and the rest carried into exile. And so when they came back out of exile, they said, we are never going into exile again. The problem is they said, therefore, we are going to change our lives and we're going to do it. Okay? And so they did it by saying, what was the thing that really kind of ticked God off the most? Our idolatry and our lack of obedience. And the fact that we failed to really, truly revere Him as God. So what they did is they set up this groundwork of laws. And by the time we get to Jesus, we see these priests, they are these Pharisees that are so focused on law and obedience. And what they have done is they've revered God so much. They've, re- they, they've lifted Him up so high and mighty and holy and so otherworldly, which He is. But they did it, I don't know if you it's kind of ironic that you can actually revere God to an extreme. But they did it so much that they lost the relationship. They lost the access. They literally cut God off from themselves relationally. They pushed him so far up there that they made him unknowable and unrelatable. And so what they became is when they came, Jesus comes along, they don't know God. I mean, Jesus even makes the point that if you really truly knew relationally the Father, you would recognize me and you would know me. But you don't know the Father, so you don't recognize me, period. You have no relationship with God. But they could list off like 613 reasons why they were revering Him, respecting Him, and obeying Him. And the reality is, is because of that, in the end, they had no relationship with Him. Therefore, they really truly weren't obeying Him in the long run. They were obeying rules and laws and not God. And so they lost the relationship. They lost the high priest. They lost that access and that intimacy to God because kingship became so important to them. Now, we come in our modern day time period, and kingship is what we've lost. Jesus has become my friend, and I'm going on a date with Jesus, and all, we really need to emphasize that Abba really means daddy, and we can sit on his lap, and da-da-da, and that's all true. But we've made him so familiar. We've made him so much of our friend. All that kind of stuff that we've completely lost the fact of He is our God. And we need to revere Him and respect Him. 
And every single time you see somebody coming in the presence of God, they are falling down on their faces. And it's like all the energy is literally sucked out of their bodies, and they're afraid. Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am an unclean man in an unclean world. And that undone means that I'm literally going to be pulled apart molecularly, basically. Like the judgment and the wrath of God is going to so come down on me, there's no way my soul, my being, my body can survive this thing. Damnation is all I can expect. You think, well, that's pre-Jesus and the Holy Spirit. You go to Revelation and John, with the Holy Spirit, is falling on the ground and feeling like he's going to be completely undone. And even with the Holy Spirit, when John is in heaven, he's still divided from God with a giant sea and a whole bunch of angels. And I don't know if that's what we are in store for eternity because John is still a sinner, but he still has the Holy Spirit. And he still feels that way. And we've lost that as a whole. I'm not saying that all of you have. I'm saying as a cultural church in America, we've lost that reverence and fear. And Jesus has become too much our Savior and not enough of Lord and Savior. And if you haven't gotten lordship from the warning passages, he hits that one hard. And so the reality is we can make him too much of our high priest that we lose that sense of respect and awe and fear. And the same sense that C.S. Lewis hit it hard when he basically said, Aslan's a lion? Yes. Was he safe? No. But he's good. That's king and high priest right there. And I think that's what we really need to take from this. If you get anything, you should be. we have to maintain this tension. The fact that he is our king. He is our God. And when there is sin in our life, we should be afraid. We should be falling before His feet, feeling undeserved and unworthy of the access that we have to Him and who He is. But at the same time, we should feel so loved and so redeemed and so blessed that despite that, we are worthy, not because of our own works, but because of the blood of Christ, because of what He's done for us, to come into His presence and to have access to Him. And we are loved and we can call Him Daddy and we can call Him Father. We can boldly and confidently go to the throne. And none of us in this life will be able to hold that tension perfectly. But the hope is, we can hopefully, our bouncing back and forth can be very close pong or um, tennis rather than very far apart. Okay, And that's the goal, that's the desire. And that's the point that he's making here. There is a sense where we are called to fear the Lord. And that fear has a little bit of, I'm scared to death of what he can do to me. But at the same time, I don't fear that he's an untrustworthy, cruel God because he loves me and he redeems me, if that makes sense. And that's hard for us because it's hard for us to think of fear in a positive sense in this new world that we live in. Okay, Fear is always negative, but there is a sense that I am afraid of him. I, I'm afraid of what he's capable of doing because I am a sinner. But at the same time, I know he's good and I can trust him and he loves me and he'll move heaven and earth and hell in order to get me back into his presence. And that's a hard thing to maintain in this world with our imperfect relationships and the fact that we fail to do those things so well in our life. And I think, you, and I think one of the benefits of being a parent or a leader or something is you get that. You don't want to be your children's best friend because then they do not respect you or obey you. 
And their, their, their lives don't get changed because they don't learn obedience. They don't learn responsibility. But at the same time, you don't want them to be deathly afraid of you because then you lose that ability to have a heart-to-heart conversation with them and shape their hearts. And it, I mean, I think we all know if you've been a teacher, a leader, or a parent, that's a hard, hard balance to maintain. And God does it perfectly. God does it perfectly. It doesn't mean we always interpret Him perfectly, but He does it perfectly. And that's what He's saying here. This is the whole point of what we've been talking about. He is both. Because God is really good at slapping you in the face and hugging you at the same time. He is a minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that the Lord, not man, set up. This tabernacle, this access to God, is not constructed with man's hands, with man's knowledge, with man's wisdom, with man's skills. Okay? We don't do a very good job of building things. Our things do not last. Our things do not function well. And so this is a sanctuary in heaven made by God. And this takes us right back to chapter 3, that Moses was faithful in the house, but Jesus is faithful over the house as the builder because he is the creator of all things. And then it also takes us back to chapter 4 where we're told that Jesus offers us God's rest. And God's rest is in the heavenly sanctuary and not in the earthly sanctuary. For every high priest... Verse 3, is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So this one too had to offer something. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. So remember, every priest has to offer a gift. And I think this is so important. Grace is not free. Grace is not free. It will cost you. It will cost a terrible price. The question is, who's paying for the price? It's free to us because Jesus paid the price. And that's the point. The priest, when they offered up gifts and sacrifice, they grabbed some poor little animal, strung it along and said, I know you have no choice. Slice the throat, drain them out, and take them into the tabernacle. Christ didn't drag anything against its will. Christ willingly offered himself up as the gift. And that's the price of grace. And that's what we must understand. When you're showing somebody's grace, grace is not like, well, you haven't been doing your homework and all that kind of stuff. Well, I'm going to give you a pass and I'll just go ahead and excuse this and not count it against you. That's not grace. Grace is, well, you haven't done your homework right and it's not done on time. Well, don't worry. I'll give you an extension on the deadline and I'll still make you do it, but I'll actually sacrifice my time and my effort and my energy and I will stay after school and I'll come along your side and I'll help you work through it and I'll help you do it and it won't be you on your own. It will be me with you. But you're still going to make it to the end. It's just you're not going to do it on your own. That's grace. It's going to cost you something if you deal grace out to people. Okay? And so that's a very inferior example of what Christ did on the cross. Um, but that's what a grace really truly is. And that's what he offered. And I think we see that. He conquered death and became a trailblazer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Okay, and that's important. And we talked about that last week. Okay, a lot of this is just review, because that's what he's doing. He's kind of building the review up and pulling all the strings together. He's not allowed to be a priest on earth because the only people on, who are allowed to be priests on earth are the Levites. And he's not part of Levi. 
Therefore, he has no right to be a priest on earth. Therefore, he has to serve in a different sanctuary. He has to. He cannot legally. God's law was set up on earth. And so on earth, he's not allowed to be a priest in the sanctuary. Therefore, for him to be a priest, he has to be a priest in the heavenly sanctuary. And that's important too. So that means that now something that he's not allowed to do, but it's good for us because it's much better for him to be a priest in heaven than on earth for our sake. Because as much as it would be very, very, very cool as a historical kind of a person to walk into that tabernacle that Moses built, I would love to do that. I still much rather have heaven than a cubic room. Okay, with a gold box in it. Right? Don't get me wrong, I would love to be in that room. But if I had my choices, it pales in comparison. And it pales in comparison. Verse 5, The place where they serve is a sketch, a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary, just as Moses was warned by God as he was about to complete the tabernacle. Now, this is important. For those who are not philosophy-oriented people, I'm sorry, but we've got to go there. Okay? A lot of people come to this and they say, look, the author of Hebrews says that the tabernacle on earth was a shadow of the heavenly realm. And unfortunately, that's the exact same words that Plato uses to describe the material realm. Now, Plato lived back in the before Christ time period. And basically, he taught this. He taught, and I'm not going to get into a long philosophical discussion, but he taught that the real world, the true world, is up there. That's the real world. And that this world down here, the material realm, is a copy or a stamp or a shadow of the real world. It's not where we're meant to be. And so he said, this is, this is real. It's not an illusion. It's not fake. Basically, it's kind of like if you're shadow. I see you coming around the corner. I see your shadow first and then you. Your shadow is real. That's a very real physical thing. It's not an illusion. I can learn a lot about you from your shadow. If I know a good mathematical equation, I can probably tell you how tall you are from your shadow. I can tell whether you're a guy or a girl. I can tell you probably a little bit your weight and your shape and that kind of stuff. But that's not... I don't want to have a relationship with your shadow. That's so inferior. The real you is you. Okay? That doesn't make the shadow not real. It just means that's not the reality. And so he believed that this world was just a copy. Therefore, you can't trust your five senses. Your five senses will mislead you because all we're doing is looking at a shadow. And so he said, ultimately, the goal is to escape this realm. And we can never escape this realm by exploring this world. We can only escape it through our reason and intellect. Okay? We know truth by just sitting and thinking. And we can figure everything out through our thinking and knowledge. And eventually, if we think and come to these logic... He, said, he didn't believe that our logic was flawed. If we could figure everything out, and logically we would be able to figure out the truth of the universe and ascend, pull ourselves up into the spiritual realm, and leave the shadow behind. And the goal is to ultimately escape this place, leave it behind, and never want anything to do with it again, because the real world is up there. Now there's a problem with that. This is the real world. 
By the fact that God created heaven and earth and put them together in the garden and placed Adam and Eve as a material and a spiritual being in the garden and He Himself entered the garden and walked with them and related to them means that the spiritual and material realm together is the real world. The problem is that our sin has separated the spiritual and the material realm from each other. And so there is a problem with the world, but the problem is not that this world is inferior and needs to be thrown away. The problem is this world is disconnected from the other half of itself, and therefore it's incomplete. And the goals come back together. And the goal, and therefore Jesus became a human. And in his body, he perfectly wedded the material and spiritual together. And then he died in the spiritual and the material, and he was raised in the spiritual and the material, and he ascended into the heaven as spiritual and material. And one day, the heavens are coming down to earth and becoming joined together again. And so the point here is not that this world is inferior and we should leave it all behind and try to escape it. The point is that the tabernacle is not complete without the heavenly thing, tabernacle. Because the reality is, one day this earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle will come together and snap together, or be overlaid on each other, or however you want to see it, merging, if we want to use internet language, okay, or corporation languages, um, together, and become one thing. So what makes the tabernacle a shadow of the heavenly is not because this world is inferior and we need to escape it and leave it behind and it's flawed in some kind of a way and God doesn't want it to exist, but because it's incomplete without the spiritual. Does that make sense? The point is not it's a shadow because it's bad and inferior and should be left behind. It's incomplete without the heavenly sanctuary. And the goal is to complete it again. And so this is the point that he's making, is that there was a very real tabernacle in heaven. And then he quotes, um, he quotes Exodus, where he's talking to Moses in chapter 25, and he says, See that you make everything according to the design shown to you on the mountain. So Moses got this vision of the tabernacle in heaven. And God says, See that? Copy it. And I think that's interesting is that Moses isn't really working from like a sketch that he drew. God didn't lay out all these measurements and he tried to visualize it and draw it out. God didn't give him blueprints. God said, you see that thing right there? Just copy it. He saw the real thing. I don't know what that looked like to him. Whether it was literal, whether it was a vision, I don't know. But it doesn't matter. The point is he literally copied the tabernacle onto the earth. And God says that's it. So that's the other thing with Plato. Plato said that the spiritual realm stamped the material, but the stamp didn't quite take. So you know how your little kids, they took stamps and they put in the ink pad and they stamped on the paper, but because they can't quite put the pressure on the paper right, the stamp didn't really come out completely uniform and equally impressed on the paper all across the board. And you're like, well, that's not really what I wanted. Because that's how Plato viewed the material realm. But God is talking about this as if the tabernacle was a perfect impression of the tabernacle in heaven. That what you saw in the First Testament is what was in heaven. The difference is that Christ wasn't completely there. What you got was a pillar of fire. 
But now with Christ, we have God himself that we can talk to face to face. The problem is not the material realm is inferior or passing away. The problem is that God is not in it. Does that make sense? And so the tabernacle is going to come back down to earth and join with the earthly tabernacle. And that's what's going to make it great, is that in earth you have men in the tabernacle. In heaven, you have Christ in the tabernacle. And that was what makes heaven superior. Because if God decided to set up his throne in the bottom of the ocean, that would be heaven. If God decided to set up his throne millions of light years away, that would be heaven. If he decided to set it up in your living room, that would be heaven. And not to be blasphemous, but if he decided to set it up in hell, hell would cease to be hell and it would be heaven. What makes heaven heaven is not a location. Now, heaven is a location, don't get me wrong. But what makes heaven heaven is because God is there. And it's kind of like when you go off to college or you move away and your parents move away. Let's just pretend they moved away and they did not tell you that they moved. And you go back home. And you're not going to be like, wow, I'm home. Home is not going to be home because your family is not there. And yes, that home still has a lot of meaning to because there's a lot of memories in those rooms. But home is not home without your family being there. And so heaven is a location, but heaven is not heaven without God being there. And that's what makes the heavenly tabernacle superior. is because on earth, it's Levitical priests. They are humans. But in heaven, it's Christ who is the Son of God. And that's what makes heaven heaven. And too often I think we focus so much about how great the location is going to be and not enough about how great it's going to be sitting in the living room on the couch with God, so to speak. That's what makes heaven heaven. Nobody wants family reunions in an abandoned house. Okay, And that's the reality. Sometimes we focus too much on the location rather than on the person who is there. And that's what he's basically saying. This was a sketch of the heavenly tabernacle that only fire and humans were in. But Jesus entered the real sanctuary, and that's what makes it so great. Not because of a Plato-like philosophy, but because of a relational, real being who is there. And this real being valued the material realm and this shadow so much that he chose to enter it and die for it and rejoin it back to its original purpose. Does that make sense? Because you go into a lot of these religions, Gnosticism and New Age movement and mystery religions and Plato's philosophies and Hinduism and Buddhism and they're all trying to escape this place because it's about location for them. It's not about knowing something or someone. And and unfortunately, I think we've bought into that too much. Because unfortunately, I see a lot of people who talk too much about, I can't wait till Christ comes back and takes me from this world of suffering and pain. And, oh, it doesn't really matter because he's just going to burn it up and destroy it anyways. And I know we don't really mean that when we say it, but that's what we sound like. I can't wait for the rapture. I don't have to be here anymore. I don't have to suffer. I don't have to put up with this stuff. And I can leave the material around behind and I'll never come back. Guess you what? You are. And I, and I get that. I get that. Even the Bible uses the language that you hear for a temporary and there's suffering and trials and they come to the end. And all, but, I, 
But don't push that so far that you begin to devalue the creation that God created and called good and died for. And the creation that he left you behind for a reason. Because if it was just about getting saved and going to heaven, then none of us would be here. And so I think that's very important. We need to be careful that we know we don't really truly mean that. We need to be careful about the way that we talk about this creation. Verse 6. But, now, the contrast is Jesus has obtained a superior ministry since the covenant he mediates is also better and is enacted on better promises. So, he's a greater high priest. He doesn't die. He offers a better gift. And he works in a better sanctuary. Therefore, he has a better covenant. He has a better covenant. And a covenant is about two people coming together into a relationship with each other. 